How's it going, everybody? Thank you so much for tuning in. I have a great podcast for you today. And if you haven't yet, make sure that you click the subscribe button on whatever platform it is that you listen to this show on. It's a great way to support it. And uh, I really do appreciate it. Make sure you also share these episodes with a friend. I think this one in particular is one that a lot of people can relate to, um, which might not seem like the case when you understand that my guest spent 22 years in prison uh, as a convicted murderer, uh, a murder that he committed during a drug transaction in South Carolina back in 1992. And I came across this gentleman after a viral social media post that he put up, um, which was a picture of a Tyson food, uh, the food processing company badge. And he talked about how Tyson Foods gave him an opportunity to reintegrate back into society because they supported hiring convicted felons. And he took that opportunity and has subsequently continued to change his life. Uh, he's formed a nonprofit. He now works for an organization that provides resources and training uh, for leadership and entrepreneurship for those who have you know, come out of prison and are looking to make those types of investments in other people as well to, to help them get on track and change their lives. And he started doing this while he was incarcerated, you know, for almost 20 years, he was teaching inside of the schools, and he actually formed an entrepreneurial class that's taught in South Carolina prisons. He was so honest with me, and I can't thank him enough uh, for being open and honest and allowing me to ask some questions, which you know, I'm sure not easy for him to, to have to go back on. But I think the fact that he was willing to do that is going to give a lot of people an opportunity to, you know, hear how he rebuilt his life. And I think, like I said, this can relate to people no matter if they're facing, you know, adversity like him or just really trying to get themselves back on track. I really hope you enjoy this episode. And like I said, share it with people if you guys think others will enjoy it as well. Give it up for my guest. Lester Young. But before we enjoy the episode, a quick shout out from our sponsor of the podcast, Action Specialty Roast Coffee and Natural Supplements. If you haven't experienced the great taste of Action Specialty Roast Coffee, you need to head to the website, drinkaction.com, that's action with a K, and sign up for a coffee subscription. You'll save 20% off and you'll have fresh roasted specialty coffee delivered to your doorstep on whatever interval you'd like. And in addition to Specialty Roast Coffee, Action provides some of the best natural supplements in the market. Products like Active, which is a turmeric and CBD combination that helps with a reduction in inflammation for joint health and just overall health and well-being. I take Active every day to help combat just aches and pains from all the different things that I do, as well as to help with a gut problem that I've had. And I've shared a lot about this on social media. You can go find those posts, but... Um, at the end of the day, active is a key component to my daily regimen to keep myself moving. Um, I also take fuel, which is an MCT bomb that gives me clean energy from coconut oil and all kinds of other cool stuff. Some really great products on the way. Head to the website, drinkaction.com, sign up for a subscription, use code word curious and enjoy this episode. So I, um, we were chatting just quickly here before we started, um, just about purpose, right? And and I do appreciate you taking the time, especially knowing how many requests you get, um, especially because I'm sure what triggered me to reach out to you has probably triggered a lot of people to reach out to you. And I think I told you this, but I was just sitting on my computer and I was, I want to even say it was LinkedIn. I was like scrolling through some things on LinkedIn and I saw this badge from Purdue yeah. Tyson and, or Tyson chicken. Yeah. Tyson yeah. chicken. And, and I was like, huh, what is this? And I start reading it. Yeah. And I, I don't remember exactly what you wrote. I I'll put a link up to folks to be able to go and find it. Cause it was a very powerful message. And yeah. ultimately what I read was, you know, you had been incarcerated. Um, yeah. You were charged with murder. You yeah. were sentenced to life and yeah. you were released after 22 years 
um, of serving time on that. And you were really crediting Tyson Chicken with giving you an opportunity to reintegrate into society and really start that path to, or I guess maybe continue that path mm-hmm. on the outside of, of changing your life and trying to make an impact on others in a positive way. And man, we're in such a negative time right now, or at least so it seems when we're watching the news and everything that when I see people like yourself who have a journey, um, mm-hmm. I don't care where that journey starts. Um, because I've come to learn even just f- through some of the conversations on this show, um, we're all just a decision away from being in a similar position to you. And I think that's hard for some people to maybe um, yeah. grasp. Maybe a lot of people don't want to admit that, but I'm starting to really see that. And so that message really hit me. And you're, you're the epitome of the type of person that I like to have on here to share out there because the folks that listen to this show, they're interested in those same types of things. People who have very, very powerful and impactful stories. So uh, for that, I do have to thank you for taking the time to come on here. No worries, brother. No worries. I appreciate you reaching out and seeing the value in my path to redemption on doing and after my incarceration. And hopefully uh, this message, this podcast, this episode will be impactful and will add value, even more value to your listeners as they continue to support you in your podcasting. But most importantly, even for my story, hopefully it adds some value to someone to change how they perceive this whole thing about incarceration, those who are transitioning out of incarceration. So I'm honored, brother. No, thank you. I think maybe just, you know, I gave that high level, um, but maybe if you could go back just even to frame up, you know, the the circumstances of where you found yourself and, and maybe just, I know you had some situation there, you lost your mom tragically mm-hmm. and suddenly, I'm mm-hmm. sure that played a huge role into a lot of the things you were dealing with at that time, but maybe just kind of frame that up because the other thing too, and maybe you can get there is I didn't realize initially you're from Hilton head. Um, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. shit, man. I, I vacation to Hilton head every summer. It's like our, our new favorite spot. Man, next season you come through, let's get some seafood and hang out, man. Definitely brother. Without a <laughs> doubt. I will, we will have to do that 100%. Um, but I, it shocks me. I didn't, I didn't realize that there was the, the types of problems that you were facing when you were a youth down on that island. That kind of shocked me a little bit. So um, <laughs> I think just even getting an understanding of, of what was going on, because that was in the early 90s, right? It was. Um, I was just a young boy. So, yeah, a lot of people say that about Hilton Head because, you know, you view Hilton Head as a tourist area, but you don't think about like on the northern part of Hilton Head. This is where a lot of the a lot of the poverty, the, a lot of the drug transactions, a lot of stuff that goes on in the northern part of the island. But most people, when they think about Hilton, they think about good, great golf uh, courses, tourism, beaches, nice food, nice place to relax. But there's a lot of other things, just like any other community, any other state, state or city. There's always that other side of the town that we really don't really hear about you know and that's the side of town I was born and raised on uh, unfortunately this is where I committed my crime this is why I sold drugs at this is where I was arrested at and this is now the place where I still call home and I go back now to serve that community to give them a better sense of awareness of the challenges that so many young black youth uh, encounter in that community so definitely Hilton is my spot so 1992 you're you were a teenager right or late teens I was 19, 1992, I was 19 years old. I just turned 19, uh, 19 years old. Uh, and like I said, my my decisions, I always tell people that I have to go back to when I was 16. As you mentioned earlier, um, uh, that I lost my mom when I was 16. So I always tell people that we, we sometime in our society, we get judged based upon the action, which I call the 300, 180 seconds, right? That's the, that's the picture that we get caught in and say, dang, 180 seconds, Lester shot this guy with drugs, and that's it. And you see me drip off into the courts, and then eventually I get sentenced to life in prison. So we never really take the time to say what happened prior to the 180 seconds. Something took place in the 180 seconds that led him to that. What were the triggers? What was something that took place? And, and those questions, no one ever asked me. You know, I remember uh, I'm sitting in jail facing a life sentence and that question was never asked. Even before uh, me committing murder, um, no one ever asked that question when I was 17 years old and got arrested for possession of drugs in school. I got sentenced to a military boot camp, did the PT push-ups, jumping jacks, ran, everything that was physically fit. But again, the question was never asked what happened. 
And what happened is that I lost my mom's, unfortunately, uh, one night me and my mom's had a, a, a dispute, a disagreement about something as simple as me, 16 years old, refusing to wash the dishes. Not realizing that my mother was sick that night. She was, she was, she was sick and she, and she asked me to wash the dishes for a reason, but my mom hid her, her sickness from the family for a long time. We really didn't know how sick our mother was. So this night I was like, nah, I'm not feeling like washing dishes. I want to go play out my go play outside with my friends, which I did. She said, when, when, when your father get back home, I'm going to tell your father that you refused and you was very disrespectful. So, you know, I went out 16 years old, went to play with my friends, came back home, did wash the dishes, but I did not say anything to my mom that night. You know, my mom's prepared the meal for me. I still did not say anything to it because normally my mother would, you know, make some make some way of apologizing to me, even though I was wrong. I was a baby. I'm like, I have three other sisters, but I'm her oldest son, only son. So I'm the baby, basically. Right. But this night she didn't. So it was kind of unusual, but I didn't really pay no attention to it. 16 years old. I'm thinking about just me. Um, so I went to bed that night, didn't go in the room and kiss my mom's, me and my, my three other sisters. No, we do that every night. I just didn't do it that night because I was pouting. Right. You know, and unfortunately, um, got up that next morning. My father woke us up and said, hey, could you being that you're the oldest? Uh, could you stay home with your moms until I get back from work? I, I'm going to take her to the hospital. I was like, nah, I need to go to school. So he told my other sister, who was the second oldest, and she stayed home. I left that morning, got dressed, walked out of the house, and did not say anything to my moms. Three hours later, uh, I got a call. One of my cousins came to pick me up and said, hey, um, your dad told me to come pick you up from school. And I was like, what's going on? By the time we walked out of the school parking lot, into the school parking lot, that's when he informed me that my moms had passed away. Right. And that was to me the, the moment where everything stopped in my life. Uh, I, I shut down. I shut down from age of 16 to about 20 something odd years old. I shut down emotionally. I detached myself from everything. And I carried this, this bag of guilt for so long. Felt like my mom's died upset with me. I blamed myself for not apologizing to my mom. So I lashed out and I attached myself to anything in my community or environment that will allow me just to verbalize or express my pain. And unfortunately, I didn't find anything healthy in my community or productive. I found the negative elements in my community that allowed me to vent in the way that it became harmful to myself and harmful to other people. Did you feel like you had, when, when you kind of put that outward anger, that there was maybe a reception from people who saw that you were, I don't want to say vulnerable, but I mean that kind of influenced you into that world because you were kind of this lost kid that, you know, was angry and that then you found a little bit of comfort from them or were you kind of just a lone wolf out doing your thing? And I, I was basically it for me, it was basically like a lone wolf. I was just like just releasing, but the, my peers in my environment affirmed that behavior okay. and that behavior. It was, it was like, yo, this dude is angry. He he's heartless. We, we love that type in that environment where I come from, that was affirmed and they gave me a sense of identity, you know, mm -hmm. and, and helped me to mask what I was already struggling with, right? So I was struggling with so much and I started smoking marijuana, started just being very disruptive in school, my behavior, everything just continued to shut down. But then on this side of my community, I had peers that affirmed that behavior, like, yo, that's, that's you know, like, celebrated that behavior. So the more it got celebrated, the more I started evolving and accepting that social environment. And then, but not knowing that it was an environment that was self-destructive, but it felt like it was a way for me to escape what I was internalizing and from, and it just continued to build. And then I found myself in this very, very dark hole of making a lot of bad decisions, uh, upsetting my father, uh, to the point where he lost, didn't know exactly what was going on with me. I'm like, I, I didn't come from a family that sold drugs. I didn't come from a father, a household where my father was never incarcerated. My father never been incarcerated. My father was uh, superintendent of the golf course, one of the golf courses in Hilton Head. I learned how to play golf when I was like six, seven years old. So I come from a very decent family, but just that particular trauma triggered me and Again, I didn't have the outlet to be able to express it in a healthy way through counseling. So I gravitated to the streets. Man, oh man, I can't imagine. It's uh, so all this stuff happens so quick. 
The circumstances behind, and we don't have to get too far into this because I do, I think this, this conversation is more valuable about the redemption aspect. Um, But it, you know, you, you have this drug deal that goes bad and Mm -hmm. you end up shooting a man and, and took his life. And was it like after that moment, like, I guess my, my big question outside of, you know, the story that ensues this was, you know, was there a shift the moment that that happened? Like, I just took a man's life or was that really didn't, didn't have the ability to even have that feeling at the time. And so you just kind of moved on and it was what it was. And like I said, and, and, and I do sincerely apologize um, to this day to the family of the individual. And I'm, I'm going to give honor his name by mentioning his name. His name is Gary. Um, I do sincerely apologize to his family because at 19 years old, by the time this incident had happened, I was so callous, right? I was callous. It was like I was numb from empathy. I didn't understand what empathy was if, if I didn't understand it, you know? Um, so when this crime happened, I was very callous, very nonchalant about the whole incident, not understanding the gravity of what I just did, right? And then the ripple effect of that action, how it impacted this guy's family. I didn't see that. It took me... I would say about three years into my incarceration where I started really factoring that in, you know, like really drawing in and like understanding like, yo, like I won, I wasn't raised this way. I wasn't raised this way. And not only that, now I deal with the guilt of my mother. And now I have a double thing, a double guilt. Now I took a man's life over a drug dispute, (laughs) like like not defending my life, but over some drugs. Right. So I had to like process that, man. And I remember it was like years I started like getting into religion and started praying and, and praying. And, and I felt like as I was praying inside of that prison, my prayer was going up to the ceiling and bouncing back down. It, I felt literally like when I get through praying, I could see it go and come back down, right? And the reason why was because I was still praying, but I did not make amends for my actions. It was easy. Like I tell people, it's easy to say, God, forgive me. But if you know you have intentionally wronged someone before you can actually go to that, you have to go to that person or that thing to make peace with that. So for years, my prayer would go up and come down, like literally bounce down. I was like, what's going on? I remember one night I was watching Dateline and I saw this show on Dateline where this mother who lost her son to murder. Right. And this mother had like a, a cry of anguish that I never heard before. Like I'm on watching her on the TV and I could hear the grief and the pain. And that automatically triggered and brought me back to the cries of Gary's family in the courtroom for the first time I was able to like literally hear that cry. So when I heard that mother cry, that immediately brought me to my to my my actions. And I sat in that cell that night. It was on a Friday night, about 1030. I, I watched the show until about 11 o'clock. And I remember I said a prayer before I went to bed and, um, and I drifted off to sleep thinking about Gary and his family. And I, was, I begged God to forgive me. And something woke me up that night and says that in order for you to receive forgiveness from me, you have to seek forgiveness from Gary. Right. I was like, man, what the, you know, like this is heavy here. Right. So I remember getting up out of my bed in the cell. I had a roommate there and I got up and I went to the corner of the door and I began, I fell on my face like in a fetus position and I began praying and I started crying and it, and it got louder and it got stronger. And my roommate woke up. He's like, man, are you okay? And I was like, man, yeah, I'm good. Like, give me, give me, give me peace. Right. <laughs> and, and in this man is like Gary's spirit came into my cell that night, you know, and, and this, this spiritual thing came where God was like, in order for me to, to do what I need to do for you is that you need to make amends. You need to want acknowledge Gary, because I used to say that they said I killed this guy, right? I, I referred to him as some, an object versus a human being, right? So I, that's why I had to open up and say, I have to acknowledge Gary. I have to mention his name because that was part of my redemption. So in this, I remember begging Gary for forgiveness. And I promised Gary, I was like, if you forgive me for my actions, you know, for the actions which I did, 
I will continue to do all I can to honor your life. I can't bring you back. I can't die in your place because that's not the way it happens, right? But I will do everything within my power as long as I have breath in my body to one, honor you, your name, but most importantly, use our experience, meaning me and his, because we were both in, a, in illegal activities, right? But to use both of our stories to be able to impact the lives of other people in this process. So that's where this uh, redemption began. And I live my life now honoring not just Path of Redemption is part of Gary's legacy because I want to always find a way to honor him. And by mentioning his name in the most honorable way to help protect him, but also to protect prevent some other young person from taking another human being's life. Is that something that you feel other incarcerated individuals face, like a similar pathway to that? Or do you think that's somewhat unique to you just based on your journey? Because I, I think that most people, you see folks, you know, that go through murder trial and it was kind of why I asked you if you felt it right away, because we're really critical when we see a bad situation happened. And then it's like, Oh, that person shows no remorse. Mm -hmm. And so by the time they're going behind bars for that first time after they're convicted, it's like the jury's like literally set on them. Like this is a bad person. There's no redemption. Yeah. And it's based off of what we see. Right. But to your point like that, it, if you've kind of been in an environment where you've been conditioned to be a certain way, it's almost impossible to expect somebody like yourself or anybody else in that scenario to have remorse because it's like, it doesn't flip like a switch like that. Right. So is that, do you find there's a lot of people that are yeah. locked up that, you know, five, 10 years in, it's like, wow, like now I get it. Yeah. It, it takes time. Like you say, you come from an environment. Some people don't get it in prison, right? Because prison, you can actually go into that environment and can continue to confirm that, affirm that behavior, that, dysfunctional behavior and lack of empathy. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there are some individuals that actually have committed a crime over a period of time. They come to that realization like, yo, I, as they begin this journey of redemption, they begin to now find like, yo, what I just did, what I did five years ago was horrible, right? It was, it's something that now I have to find a way. Now they're stuck inside of a prison trying to find a way to do, to send that letter of an apology to the family. I say this, right, Justin, um, I remember Gary's uh, family, uh, his younger sister and brothers had asked me, well, they were very young. They were like middle school age when their brother died and um, his children. And they asked, they remembered when I was in the courtroom, they said that one of the things, because we had an opportunity to talk after this since I've been released from prison. And they, one of the things that they said was like, you showed no remorse for my brother's death in the courtroom. And my, my response was to that is that I told him that I didn't know how to show remorse. I didn't even cry for my own mother's when my mother died. Like, you know, my mother died, I internalized her pain. I didn't even cry. I didn't cry for years, even when my mom's died because I just, I just processed, I shut down. I shut down that day that I heard that news. So I explained to them the reason why I did not show because I did not know how to show that level of remorse, right? I had to like rebuild myself to that level to be able to have a level of empathy to understand the pain of someone else I shut down right and even I told him that even if I would have said apologize I apologize to you in the courtroom that day you wouldn't have really believe it until now because it would have it wouldn't have come off as authentic right so now like we had an opportunity to talk and now they can see the authenticity of my apology and my remorse because of the evolution or the growth that I've went through and the things I've done in the last 20, 30 years since the passing of their brother, they can now see it. So that's why I tell people like, yeah, there are people who are stuck in prison that are really searching for this, but then the family members, they have to come to that level of forgiveness as well. Like in my situation, I think it's a very unique situation, right? Um, because this family had a lot of resentment towards me, which was completely understood, right? But by, man, only by the grace of God, he changed their hearts to a heart of forgiveness, right? To, to this day, one of the brothers of Gary and I still, we communicate, right? Like I went up for a pardon a year ago and he was one of the advocates that pushed for me to get a pardon. His father who recently passed away almost two years ago, which I really hated that I did not get a chance to physically apologize to the father of Gary because in South Carolina, the victims cannot have a, have a line of communication directly. 
And I remember I petitioned the parole. I was on parole at the time. I petitioned to go speak to the father because he requested me to come to his house and talk. Like he wanted to me to sit in his living room to hear more about his son, right? And I really hated the fact that South Carolina have this crazy law that they prevent on a victim and their families to have a line of reconciliation and restorative justice because the father really wanted to, I, I really, in me, I really wanted to sit down to hear the stories of who Gary was, right? I only remember Gary as a person that, that engaged in drug dealing with me, right? I don't, I didn't get a chance to know Gary, the young man, the father, the son, and that's the information that the father wanted to share with me in this moment of reconciliation, but the parole denied, uh, the parole board denied that opportunity. And that's one of the things that I deeply regret um, because he, he eventually passing away and we only had an opportunity to communicate via like a video and not something personal. So you mentioned how there's kind of like the two camps, right? There's people that can be hardened even more by incarceration. And then there's others like yourself that really find it as a catalyst to change. Mm -hmm. Is there an internal conflict amongst those two groups when you're inside um, where, you know, it's like looked down upon by the guys who don't want who kind of reaffirm that negative behavior and continue to live a life of crime behind bars. And then it's like, here's, you know, here's Lester's over here, like reading up on, on changing and all this stuff. It's like, bro, you're facing a life sentence. Why are you doing that? Right. It's like, bro, speaking. Yeah. I, I experienced that, man. I experienced it. And, I, and it's funny you asked that because I go into the prisons now, one of the prisons I was once housed in and I teach my book, the five stages of incarceration. And I remember telling these guys, like I, when I chose the path of redemption, which was completely different from the prison environment. See, there's two levels that I discovered in prison. There's a decriminalization and there's a recriminalization. The definition of Omar, most people go to prison, they get recriminalized. They learn new ways to continue affirming their criminal behavior and criminal thinking, and that's how they live the duration of their sentences and return back into the prison, institutionalized and criminalized, right? But there's a small group of people that travel that path of decriminalization and redemption. So I remember making that choice when I chose after me that night, I had that com that spiritual conversation with Gary. I woke up that next day and for days and weeks, I planned my exit from the recriminalization part of the prison. I, I, cause part of my prayer and my promise to Gary was I was not gonna live that life no more. And that meant even if I had to go against my friends. So in prison, it's very protective, meaning that you have to be a part of a group sometime to survive prison. And I was a part of a, a very large group of people in prison, right? But so when I chose this path, they ridiculed me because one, I went to prison with a seventh grade level of education. So I knew that my passport to my redemption was education. So I began going to school to get a GED and, and instead of reading books, instead of buying contraband in the prison, I was ordering books to begin rebuilding and changing this narrative. And I remember they laughed at me. They was like, man, you on your own. It's almost like in prison is like the sheep that leaves the flock that you easier to get devoured by the wolf. But I tr I trusted me. I trusted me and I bet it on me. And with that, man, I remember walking, walking on that prison yard for months and years by myself. But I won them over because they saw consistency in me. So the same individuals that ridiculed me now was coming up saying, hey, man, could you help me um, find me some peace because I'm at a point now where the marijuana or the prison wine isn't helping me escape what I'm going through, man. This, this ish is hard on me. My conscience is bothering me. Help me find some redemption with this situation. And that's why I began teaching my homeboys and then they eventually poured into the prison yards. And every prison I went to, even to this very day, I'm known as uh, Lester Young, the guy who, who teaches from his book called The Five Stages of Incarceration. Before this book was published, I was teaching for over 18 years inside of the prison. Oh, wow. Yeah, because the, the book itself was, correct me if I'm wrong, it was based off of the journals in a lot of ways that you were kind of writing while you were in there. And I imagine that's the, a lot of the work that you did on yourself. Yeah, it was, I, I didn't have a counselor. I didn't have a counselor to speak to. I didn't have anyone. When, you, when you're sentenced to life in prison at a young age, you would think that the system would be set up to put you into some, some type of therapeutic programs to help you process everything. But I was basically, I remember my orientation, my first day in orientation in prison, they was like, hey, um, you got your parole date. This is like 1993. Your parole date is 2012. 
<laughs> so think about it. 1992, your parole date is 2012, right? So uh, there's nothing we can do with you because you don't fit the criteria for any of the programs. So just sit over there and don't get in no trouble. If you get in trouble, we're going to send you to lock up. So just stay over there and be at, stay out our way and we'll stay out your way. And that's what it basically was for me. But, you know, I, I by the grace of God through prayer, man, my, the prayer of a father is a very powerful thing, too. My father was a man that prayed for me, prayed for my redemption, even before I began praying. And that guided me and helped me find my level of redemption through reading and through that journaling. I unlocked so many things about who I was. Is there... Oh, shoot, I lost my train of thought there for a second. Um, oh, I know what it was. Um, when you... When you're looking at that 20 years, I mean, ultimately life, but parole, you're going to be the opportunity for parole is in 2012, right? Did you have hope at that point in time that you were going to get out? Or was there at any point in time where you kind of were like, I, I might not even get paroled? Like, theoretically, I could spend the rest of my life in prison. Or did you have hope that you were going to get out? I didn't want to buy into that narrative because I saw so many individuals out of prison had that mindset had had it had killed them. They died in prison, meaning emotionally, mentally, institutional lives. They were not functioning. So I automatically knew that I'm not going to buy into that narrative, right? So when people were saying, hey, you got a life sentence, you killed somebody, man, South Carolina was never going to release you. I didn't buy into that. I had Going back again, I had to learn how to eliminate the distractions and focus on me, my path to redemption, and hopefully my path, my personal journey of to redemption will eventually give me freedom one day, right? But it was all about how I made it from one month to one year to five years to 10 years. And it was not really focusing, I knew I had the date, but it was more so focusing on me, but also finding a way where I can give back to others in prison, which will allow me not to focus on numbers and years, but focus on the impact that I'm able to activate right here in the prison. And that allowed me to keep moving, but I never, never, to this day, I tell people, don't buy into the negative narrative that people project on you, right? Because too many people that questioned me was like, man, why are you doing this? Why are you reading books? Why are you this? Why are you These same people are still in prison to this day, went in the same year I went in, and they're still there because they bought into the narrative that someone else gave them, and they never, they quit believing, and they lost hope. I refused back then, and even to this day, to have lived with no hope. No, nah, I can't do that. That's not how we were not created for that, man. That's just my belief. I believe God created us to endure. He has any, any trial that we encounter. We are equipped with all of the tools that we need to get us through whatever it may be is up to us to activate this tool. And a lot of people don't activate the tool. So they find themselves stuck in the situation and the situation never changes. But if the God that you believe created everything in the heavens and the earth, from everything gets its provisions. I, I just don't believe that, man. I, I believe in hope, man. I'm a dream. I've been dreaming for years and I'm gonna continue to dream. I'm living my dream right now. No, that's beautiful. Yeah. So you mentioned you didn't have a counselor when you were in there and I would imagine things have, and maybe this is a, a bad assumption, but that things have evolved some way, shape or form to provide more resources like that into institutions. But I, I would imagine there's not a lot of people like you, you're the outlier from my, my perspective. And you know, that for every 10 people that do end up going to prison, you know, probably even less than one out of 10 mm -hmm. makes the type of transition that you do. And then ultimately gets out and then puts that to work. So there's mm -hmm. not a lot of Lester's out there that are going back in and having these conversations with people who then can really relate with you because I would, I would guess that, there's a value you could get if some dude like me who went to school for this stuff came in and put together a program, but you know, somebody who sat in their shoes that experienced all of their experiences and felt what they're feeling is going to have a much bigger impact on someone to make changes than the MBA from, you know, whichever college that's in there to, you know, help push a program. Absolutely, man. That, and you know, that was the thing that I always going back again to honoring Gary, right? I always said that once I got out of prison, I'm not going to stop coming to prison. I wanted to be physically free to have the freedom to do some things different in this in this in the society. But part of Gary's legacy and my 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 legacy is to go back into the prisons 
because of my experience, my unique, my unique learning experience has made me an expert to be able to help facilitate and help individuals find their redemption so that a person don't walk out of prison hard-hearted and actually commit another crime, but also to help individuals break out of their own physical, I mean, out of their own mental, emotional prison, and they can find some sense of redemption with that, right? So it's about that, and it's, and it's powerful. I remember having Count, not counselors, but volunteers would come into the prisons and they would always speak to us, but I it never landed well with me. You know, they would come in and talk about impact on crime and about the power of a victim, but oh, oh tell us how bad we were, right? And, I, and I'm like, I don't need you to keep telling me how bad I am, right? But I need you to let me help me find redemption and help me find the qualities about who I am that are great that I can activate, right? So this is when I started like taking over classes. I'm like, hey, I could, I could look at your curriculum and I can modify that curriculum to fit the environment because most people have a curriculum that does not fit the environment, nor the language of the environment. So again, that was a unique, a unique gift that I have is I can take your curriculum, any curriculum and break it down and teach it inside of the prison and it will have a greater impact because of the lived experience that I had. Not only just living in prison for 22 years, but even the lived experience prior to incarceration. Like an example, I started teaching a financial, a financial literacy class and business class, right? Because I, I looked at two things that led me to prison. One, I, I, I wanted to make money. I'm an entrepreneur, right? But in my environment, I had the wrong product, right? So what I needed to do, I, I was reading a book on marketing in prison. I was like, damn, this stuff I did as a street hustler selling drugs, very similar marketing campaign, you know? Um, how, could I, how could I create my own marketing campaign, create a different product or service, right? So when I started getting that, I started teaching business classes. I started one of the first business classes in South Carolina prison, entrepreneurship, one-on-one, -on -one, learning how to change your criminal mindset to an entrepreneurial mindset, you know, so that when you walk out of prison, you don't walk out asking for a job, you walk out with providing a service because you got 20 years to think about a product or a service that you can take and be a solve a problem in your community. That's what we do as entrepreneurs, right? So yeah, it's, it's about understanding those curriculums and that's just the unique value that I bring in a conversation when I go back into the prisons that you may go in as great, your information may be great and it definitely will help change lives, but to be able to activate my knowledge and your knowledge together from my lens and your lens, you have a greater impact that is profoundly different, you know, in a great oh, way. Yeah, no, listen, it doesn't matter what you're trying to connect with somebody on. If you've lived it, there's mm -hmm. just a level of... Uh, trust right the people are willing to to really kind of give you their whole self in order to hear what you have to say otherwise you know you're you're probably stiff arming it a little bit you know you're keeping it at arm's length is it is it difficult to go back and you know to be in that environment does it bring back memories like that for you or is it just kind of another day in the life you know, man, um, a lot of people say it's triggering for them, but going back again, it's like, it's bigger than me. It's bigger than me, Justin. It's about like, it's about the legacy of Gary Goldinger, the guy that I killed. It's about how, in my legacy, like helping people. And I prayed for this. Like, I, there's many nights I sat in prison to say, God, when I am released, how could I come back to help people? That's my purpose. Like the, the purpose, I've been doing this all my life working after me being sentenced to life in prison, I started building this level of empathy where I want to help people. And who, who best to help than people who have been there? So the prisons I go back to, it's like I go to a prison that I was once housed in, right? I actually walked by the cell that I was sleeping in and praying in. And, and I, I literally go to this cell and I just, sometimes I tell the guys who are in the room, like, hey man, get out of this room, get out. Let, let, let me sit in this, in this cell for a minute, right? I literally go sit back in that cell just to remind, I'm like, literally, I remember this cell. I haven't, only, I haven't only been out of prison seven years, right? And I and I still have, the dorms are still the same color, the room, everything is still the same way certain prisons I go to. And I go back there, man, to 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 reconnect where, where I come from, um, but also to be that inspiration because a lot of guys didn't see someone like me come back to prison, right? So now they, when I go back, they be like, hey, man, I saw you on the news. Hey, man, I saw this, my family... And it gives them hope to know that, hey, there is a redemption after incarceration. And if they ever need a, a physical example of that, it's me. 
and it may be a few other people, but right now it's me because I'm going to that prison. They know me. When I say, man, I was staying in the same dorm. This My room number was 1216, and I can go and show you a mark that I put on that wall. You know, my name is still something that I carved in that wall to show you. That make it's like, it really resonates with you even more. So, yeah, it's... It's crazy good. I mean, in a way that it's, I'm living my purpose. I'm living on the prayer that I prayed inside of prison. I'm able to go back and it hurt my heart when I first got out of prison because I was on parole. And because I was on parole, they was like, you can't go back into the prison. I'm like, why can't I go back into the prisons and teach? Like, if we talking about redemption, this doesn't make sense. Like I have something to offer these men and women. Why would you deny me that? You say, well, you can't associate with anybody with a felony. But I said, do you know there's 70 million people in our country got a felony conviction? One in three individuals in certain communities I go to have a felony conviction. Like the policies have to change on some of this stuff. And that's where I'm, uh, that's where my advocacy come in. From my experiences, I believe that like a lot of this stuff has to change, man. And one of them has to be allowing those who have the lived experience to go back into the prisons and help educate those because it's, it's important. Yeah. It's, I don't, I don't see how you could, that's got to be something that happens, right? I mean, the, the impact, like I said, it doesn't matter what you're doing. It's the people who have lived those experiences that are going to have the greatest impact. And I couldn't agree more with you. You know, <clears throat> I have to, I have to ask because, you know, maybe you were lucky um, and maybe you wrote this in the post and I missed it, but was that Tyson job, the, the first one you applied for, or what's that process like? Because I would, I know, and some of the things that you fight for, right. Is, you know, removing the questions on the front of a job application. Yeah. Have you been committed? Have you been convicted of a crime, right? Yeah. All these things that people can use to filter out applicants that they just don't want to deal with, yeah. uh, you know, maybe explain what that was like for you. And, and what was that opportunity like when Tyson offered you that role and, you know, how you took that to the next level to continue, right? I mean, because it could have just been, look, hey, I'm out. I found a way to make some money and then I'm, I'm right back at it now. Listen, it was like for me, um, when I first got out of prison, um, it was, I, I was unemployed for about six, seven months when I got out of prison. I was unemployed. Um, companies wasn't hiring me. And also inside of prison, I got a two-year degree in business and business management. So I was hoping that that would give me leverage in some way to get into the inner, in somewhere of the, of the, of a business. But I found that there was so many barriers and I didn't realize at the time during my incarceration that in this country, um, across the country, there's over 48,000 collateral consequences attached to a person felony conviction. And each state has their own respective collateral consequences. And all of them come down from employment, occupational licensing, housing, just a variety of different things that have been on the book for 20, 30, and 40 years that no one really go back and readdress. So they're still there, but they hinder individuals in their transition back into the workforce in different areas of their lives. So for about six to seven months, as I mentioned, I was unemployed, man. It became, it started to become very stressful. I started to experience a level of depression because I, I wanted to work and I knew that I had responsibilities. In prison, you don't you don't have to worry about paying a bill because the state where you house that have that money to pay light bill, water bill, food, et cetera, clothing in the real world, I was faced with these things. And even though I had a family, you start becoming a, 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 a added, a added responsibility to a family that may already have a, a tight budget. You're coming into a household. You may add an extra $2,000 a month that that family may not have. You see what I'm saying? So, that, that became very distressing, I mean, very depressing to me. But eventually, um, I, I went through a few services and someone told me about Tyson Foods, right? And they said that Tyson Foods hired people with felony convictions. I went and got my forklift certification just to like beef my resume up because I only thing most people getting out of prison they can do is warehouse work. So I was like, let me go get my forklift certification and hopefully that'll get me. And so with that forklift certification, that got me in the door with Tyson Foods. And when I got into Tyson Food, I'm like, man, how can I land this job? I really need this job. So one of the things I used to teach in prison was to study the company that before you go into an interview, like literally study who you're going into, like know this company, like literally know it so that that would give me that advantage over the applicants who didn't have a felony conviction, right? Mm -hmm. So I remember the human resource guy asked everyone like, hey, what do you think Tyson, this Tyson uh, plant does? So everybody said kill chickens. So I was like, oh, I know I got them now, right? Because that company didn't kill chickens. They were actually a food, pro a food processing plant. 
And so that gave me an opportunity to tap into with this human resource manager about the history of Tyson because I did my homework. And I even knew his name prior to even going into the um, interview because on the website it had who he was as the human resource manager. So I knew all of that and that tapped me in. So he he's like, well, we're going to hire you. He hired They hired me as what is called a grinder operator uh, at Tyson Foods. That's the process, the cold food. And from there, man, within 90 days, I got promoted. So with that, because I studied um, like Tyson stocks prior to me even getting out of prison, I studied the stocks, right? So I knew that Tyson stocks was good. I knew the company where it was going. I just knew because I studied it. So I'm I remember asking the uh, human resource manager, hey, um, like I, I'm, I'm looking to invest some money in these stocks here. And do you guys offer this um, opportunity for stock investment? He's like, yeah. So I immediately started investing my money in stocks because I had my mentor told me to write out a five year goal. And one of the one within that five years, I wanted to buy a house. I wanted to buy my first house with no illegal money, hard earned money. So the quickest way to buy that house for me was to put my money in 401k, but also into the stock market, you know what I'm saying? Um, to, to, to get the greater return on my, my, my investment versus a savings account. And so for two years, I accelerated my, um, my income into uh, Tyson stocks and their 401k, which brought me at that two year mark, I was able to buy my house. I bought my first house with no cosign. And unfortunately, in South Carolina, if you have a felony conviction, you can't even get an apartment in your name. I was able to buy my first house within two years of me working at Tyson, but also the beauty that the supervisors who knew my journey of redemption, they gave me an opportunity that when I needed to go and speak to a school or I needed to go into a prison, they would give me that day off, right? They was like, hey, we're going to give you this day off. Don't call out because I call out quick and lose all, eventually lose my job because they had a point system. But they was like, hey, what, why do you keep calling? I said, man, I'm passionate about helping people. And they was like, well, you passionate about helping people. Let us know beforehand before you have to do these events so we'll schedule out um, around you. And that's what they did for three years. I, well, I gave myself five years at Tyson. But I left Tyson in three years, you know, um, with owning my own home. I bought, uh, I started my own pressure washer business. I saw a guy in prison pressure washing a concrete. Remember, I was teaching business in, inside there. I saw this guy pressure washing the concrete, asked him a couple of questions, put it in my journal about starting a pressure washer business, got out, worked with Tyson, bought all the equipment and started running a pressure washer business. And I ran it out of the trunk of my car. So when people would call me, say, I need my house pressure washed, I would tell them this story that, hey, I am overbooked. I'm not able to be at your house until three or four o'clock, not knowing I, that's the time I got off at Tyson's. <laughs> so I would get off from Tyson's with my, I had a Ford Fusion, 2015 Ford Fusion, packed it up with the hose, buckets, pressure wash in the back trunk, backseat of my car. And I will leave from Tyson and go pressure wash or I leave from Tyson and go and do some community service. But I eventually build up enough social capital what I use in, to eventually leave Tyson and then do this, what I do now full time. That's so awesome. <laughs> and, and, and I think they deserve, you know, and I, I think you gave them quite yeah. a quite a shout out, you know, just with that post, man, there was millions of people that were, that were looking at that post, which is so cool. And like 1 million and like one and a half million people haven't seen that, that post, man. Yeah. But I have to acknowledge them because they gave me a chance. Most of the companies, most of the people that I worked for prior to Tyson, man, they were trying to pay me under the table. They were not wanting to pay me nothing at all because they saw that I needed something. So they saw an opportunity to exploit me. And, you know, uh, that was that was completely wrong. But Tyson did not exploit me that within 90s, as I mentioned, Tyson's the structure allowed me to get promoted from making eleven dollars to fifteen dollars an hour, more hours. Uh, I was able to just grow in that company. The only thing I just regretted them not allowing me to do, I was trying to create this program, a training program, because I'm always looking for business opportunities. Right. So I was looking to create a training program for those who are transitioning out of prison into the company because I saw that it was a, a disconnect. Most, most individuals, when they're transitioning out of prison, they may go through the training, but they have not addressed that, that, that institutional type thing into the workforce. And it was a challenge because people were quitting more than they were excelling inside of the, um, inside of the company. So again, as, a, as an entrepreneur, you find a solution. And when you see a problem, the solution was do better training and having someone like myself who had the lived experience to understand helping them navigate that process. So hopefully at some point we can um, revisit that training. Oh, that's so cool.
So I know you're an author, you've, you've written two books, but mm -hmm. when you say, you know, I'm doing this full time, can you kind of elaborate what, what is the new path? What is the, the full spectrum? Cause it sounds like you're doing a, a lot of different things, but it's all really rooted in that same focused area, right? Yeah, it's all related. What I do now, I work with also with an organization which is called Just Leadership, um, Just Leadership USA, where we focus on educating and empowering and, and educating, empowering, elevating the voices of those who have then been directly impacted by the, the, the prison system. So I'm a trainer. I, uh, I train on leadership. I train those who have been in prison to who want to become an advocate and an organizer around changing some of the policies. I help them develop um, leadership skills, help them with organizing and advocacy to be able to change policies. Um, because one of the things, and when I got out of prison, I was able to get eight uh, band of box policies passed in South Carolina, and that was huge. And what is the band of box? Is getting uh, city council and county council to remove off the application, have you been convicted of a felony, which will allow these individuals to move to the next phase of a hiring process and eventually get hired. So I'm, because, of, because of what I experienced when I got out of prison, I wanted to make that easier for someone else who's coming behind me. So I became an advocate and we got eight of them passed and I eventually joined Less, Just Leadership USA to now be on a national level where I am one of the key trainers with our particular leadership, uh, our leadership program, what is called Leading with Conviction, where I help individuals who are transitioning out of prison, who are ready to step into the role of leadership or organizing advocacy. We help them prepare for that. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And then you're also, you founded Path to Redemption, which is your nonprofit, right? Yeah, Path to Redemption is my nonprofit. I founded that when I was in prison with my mentor, Rick Jordan, who eventually, who passed away uh, a couple of years after I got out of prison. So Path to Redemption focused not on the advocacy, Path to Redemption focused on the self-care, the health is, the, yeah, the, um, the aftercare of those who are transitioning out of prison, helping them prepare for employment. You know, on Just Leadership, we focus on advocacy, I also saw that there's still a gap where it's not too many individuals helping people navigate life after incarceration, helping you to identify depression, helping you be able to identify that panic attack when you're standing in a grocery store and you have to do a kiosk. Like I just went to McDonald's, right? And I'm looking at this kiosk and I'm standing up at the register and it was like, hey, you got to order from the kiosk and then we do this. So I'm like, okay. So I went through it because I've been through the process for a while now, but I thought about how a person who walks out of prison goes to a McDonald's and they have to work on a kiosk now to order something that creates a panic attack that shuts down. So I recorded that video. I recorded something to let the guys know when I go back to prison, like this is the reality of society now. So that's what Path to Redemption does. It helps individuals in that navigating process. I'm glad you bring that up because I mean, I was going to ask you earlier and then you mentioned that you were watching Dateline. So I'm like, I don't know, maybe I have this skewed ver vision of like, what prison is like, you seem like you have some access, but to the flip side of that, I'd imagine spending 22 years in prison and then getting out, there's a lot of things that you are not familiar with and that you haven't had the ability to be kind of like clued in on prior to leaving. So, I mean, is there anything that sticks out to you that when you were released that you were like, holy shit, like I had no idea. Man, listen, technology, this is why technology, educating those who are transitioning out of prison with technology is key because we're living in an era now where technology is running everything. Um, and people in prison, we may have a TV, uh, like a television, that's about it, falls a computer, laptops and all that stuff. You don't have it. One experience, like one first experience about a week out of prison, I went to Popeye's Chicken here in South Carolina uh, with one of my mentors and people just casually walk to the counter and order stuff. Right. So I'm standing there for 22 years. I never really had to make a choice about what I needed, to, what I wanted to eat, because in prison, they give it to you. You don't ask. They just give you this is what for dinner, et cetera. So here it is. I'm 41 years old, standing up at this fast food restaurant, looking at the menu and got completely overwhelmed. Like my body literally wanted to shut down. I literally wanted to run out the store, but I embraced it. I leaned into that discomfort, right? So I remember telling the lady, I was like, whatever that guy in the front of me ordered, I want the same thing, right? So she was like, okay, he got it. So I was like, yeah, get me that too. And then she said, it comes with a drink. So she gave me this cup and I went over to the the, the, the soda machine, you know, the, the, the fountain, fountain drinks, right? And man, I literally put the cup there and I hit, I'm like waiting for the soda, so I hit Coke. And like 20 flavors of Coke came out. And I got stuck. I didn't know what to do at this machine, bro. Right? So it took me about like five minutes. And the lady, young lady at the counter, she was like, sir, is something wrong? Like, is the machine working? I'm like, I'm literally glued. Like, I got overwhelmed. Like, 
panic attack because I did not know. And that right there to me, that's when I'm, I, again, I, I was very in tune with my experience. When I got through it, I was able to help. I share, I sent a, a video back into the prison to one of the prison chaplains telling them about that story for those who are preparing for reentry, how you have to be prepared for that. So I started documenting my experiences from the day I walked out of prison and even to this day where I send the content back into the prisons to the different prison chaplains that they can share it with the men about these different challenges. But mine was that, that soda machine at, uh, at Popeye's, man. I, I literally uh, freaked out on that situation, man. That's a great, <laughs> it's a great story. I think the, the funny thing is, man, I've seen people who didn't spend any time in prison and they stare at those machines and they're confused. So <laughs> it's, that's justified. Um, I, I want, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up because I, right now we're you see a lot of cries for legalization of drugs. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's a touchy subject. I think there's been really good examples of other countries that have decriminalized drugs um, just more from a user base. Right. So uh, I think the the premise being, if you decriminalize it, if you legalize things and regulate it, you take the criminal aspect out of that as mm-hmm. somebody who, spent time in prison because of a drug related uh, activity that resulted in the crime. I mean, do you, do you have a unique perspective on that? I mean, obviously I'm not, I think it's a separate conversation of whether or not drugs are something that people should be consuming. That's a whole different one, but the legality of it and the criminal element that having illegal drugs creates, it does, you know, I, in my estimation, cause a lot of, crime and violence that otherwise wouldn't happen. But, you know, you telling me your story makes me wonder if you would have found a different way to act out on the pain that you were feeling inside. Mm. Or if, you know, if we did have a different type of policy here at that point in time that you wouldn't have. And that's a tricky question, right? Because then you don't go to prison and then you, you might not make those changes. So I guess everything happens with God's will for a reason, but I I was thinking about this a lot today as I was, you know, approaching this conversation. I'm just thinking about it, man. It's like, you know, it's like you said, it's it's, it's it's one of those um, questions that requires a whole lot more content, right? A little more feed into it. Um, But when I look at, when I look at just drugs, we know that we see we legalizing marijuana, right? So that's now is, is no longer in certain states an issue. But is it going to prevent someone in a community that who's selling drugs to now, what, change their lives? No, I don't think so. I think that most, I would say for me, the reason why I gravitated to selling drugs because it was the only thing in my environment that I could use to make money at the time that I saw that was making fast money, right? So we got to understand that people in certain communities don't necessarily want to become drug dealers. It's that when you're living in poverty, Poverty sometimes forces you to find other ways to do it. And unfortunately, when there's something more accessible to you, like drugs in a certain community, you're going to gravitate towards that. You may not want to do it, but that's the thing that you see everyone else in your neighborhoods doing at this time. So I just think that we, if we address the line of poverty in certain communities and educate more people about entrepreneurship, how to like create a t-shirt, how to turn a t-shirt business into a million dollar business, with the same skin skill set that you put into cutting up and selling marijuana or drugs, you can put that same type of energy into entrepreneurship and create something, create an app. We live in an era now where it's that. So I just think that for me, I just think that it's not just about the drugs legalizing or unlegalizing. I think that we have to look to the deeper root and begin to address poverty and provide better entrepreneur knowledge in these different communities that will help empower our community. Oh man, so true. I I have this conversation regularly, just even about school systems, right? It's like we teach all these skills that don't translate into the world that people walk out of their senior year of school, whether they go to college or not. It's like most people haven't been taught how to manage a bank account, how to manage money and invest, how to how to be an entrepreneur. They're taught to be a nine to five worker, to follow the leader, to listen and you know be compliant. And I guess there's a, a time and a place for that. And I think it's probably rooted to the fifties when people went to school, they sat in rows, just like in their factory environment, but it's, we live in a different world now. You know? Educational system in our country has to change, man. Like we have to be honest about that. Educational system is outdated in this country. And I said that hopefully it don't offend anybody, but when we look at that, even the, even the whole educational structure right now, and we got to look at what is it really feeding? What is it really creating? Right. We look, and also we know we're living in a capitalist free enterprise society. 
So what? who benefit the most off of a structure like this, right? You know, just all due respect. So I just think that we have to really reassess our educational structure right now. Um, I always think about this book, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. <laughs> Don't don't make me pull my books out, man. Don't make me pull out my Robert Kiyosaki books, bro. You know, I'm a big... I got, like, all the Robert Kiyosaki books, man. Like, I have... Some people, I hope your audience don't get upset with me on this, but I have, like, the Protect Your Asset, Robert Kiyosaki, um, Real Estate uh, Guide to Investment. we want we want you to be rich by Donald Trump and Robert Kiyosaki. So I'm a big Robert Kiyosaki fan. I've been reading his books when I was in prison, but like he said, rich dad, poor dad. You know what I'm saying? And his dad, his dad was poor because of the educational structure. Dad was a great man, but this rich guy showed him about wealth, and he was able to build wealth and understand wealth. And that was didn't come from the educational structure. It came from someone who depended, who leaned on the entrepreneurial mindset and understood the value of wealth and how to create these different quadrants to be able to create wealth and build wealth asset liability. You know what I mean? So yeah, I, I just think that our whole structure with that. So when we talk about drugs, when I go into a community now, I don't like, when we talk about like putting guns down and nonviolent things, I'm like, okay, what is the alternative? We have to teach young people how to create their own. If you have the, if a young person like myself, when I was young, I had the courage to pull a trigger. I had the courage to stand on a block and all night and sell drugs and take the risk of a poli- the, the police catching me or selling it to the wrong person. That same thing, if I package it right and teach individuals that entrepreneurs, one of the key things in making you a great entrepreneur's risk taking is that you're willing to create a product and take a risk and, and, and dedicate time and energy to it. You can create an empire with that. The hours I spent on my street corner, if I would have spent that hours building a business, God know why I would have never went to prison. I would have created a major business because I didn't have the tools. So when I go into the community now, I teach entrepreneurial um, mindset. Like what does it take to be successful, not just after prison, but create something like create, find a problem in your community and create it, man. So yeah, bro, we can be on this all, all day talking about uh, business and, and stuff like that, man. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, it's, it, you know, it's funny. I just saw a cool video Chance the Rapper posted. And yeah. uh, he was talking about the hats that he's made a ton of money off of. And they were like, you know, what's the method behind it? He's like, the method behind it, he's like, it was a great way to make money. I pay $6 for a hat. Yeah. I mean, he's like, I made $6 million last year selling these hats. Yeah. And it, that's, it's, I mean, obviously he has a platform to be able yeah. to go and do that, right? To, but the the process, the method is, it's that entrepreneurial aspect, right? It's the same thing that to your point, guys are doing, you know, buying, whether it's drugs or anything illegal and, and marking it up and marketing it. It's, it's, yeah. it's no different. It's, you can do it with a hat or a t-shirt to your point or start a pressure washing business or a podcast or, you know, list goes on. Find and on. your passion, find your passion. And like I said, how I connect with them, like you just mentioned, we got a wholesale retail, you know, when you, when you per, it's okay. When you're talking about illegal drugs, you have to go to get a cheaper price. You got to go to what they call the plug. You got to go to a wholesaler to buy it in large quantity. Okay, so now you you got that understanding of retail versus wholesale. Now, let me show you. If you got a T, I'm just using a T-shirt, for example. Instead of going to Walmart and pay $12, $13 for one T-shirt that you got to print something on, that's going to boost that cost up to $20 with your overhead, not your overhead, but you're not, you're not going to be getting a profit margin, right? So what I'll say, hey, hey, let's go buy it in bulk. Like you would go to the neighborhood drug dealer or whatever and buy it in bulk and you get it at a cheaper price, find the wholesaler who sells whatever that product is that you want, buy it, which will be the t-shirts now if you're buying the wholesale at $3 versus $12. So now that give you opportunity to increase your profit margin because you're buying at a wholesale price. So the hats or whatever you're passionate about, find out who the plug is. And now in our, in our language, he called the plug, but he's act, he or she's actually the wholesaler that sold the products that you need. That's right. No, it's it's good stuff, man. No, you know, it's 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 a perfect way to kind of bring this thing full circle because I think the the main thing is I would imagine you have probably a very uh, you I guess um a value, a, a high value on time. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's an assumption, but I would imagine that has to be true. When you spend a lot of time in your own thoughts, sitting in a cell, the value of time, I'm sure is a lot more than people who just are outliving their life day by day, not really understanding that. What, obviously there's the passion of making a difference in this world as it pertains to folks who've gone similar path to you, helping them out of prison, helping them find who they are and and make changes. But, you know, being down in South Carolina, you mentioned seafood and stuff. What else are you doing to enjoy your time outside of this work? Cause I, I mean, as passionate as you be, man, you have to have a moment where you got to step back from that and go fishing or I don't know what, what are the things that, that Lester enjoys doing in his free time. I've been like, you know, uh, what's that? Uh, what's God name, man. I keep forgetting his name. Cordon mentioned the 10 X rule. Right? I don't know if you read in his books, the 10 X rule. Grant, uh, Grant Cordon. Yeah, Cordon yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I've been living 10 X since I've been out of prison. That's so why I was able to just maximize um, the things I've accomplished in seven years. Some people haven't accomplished in 20 years and they've never been to prison. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I'm just learning how to step back and enjoy life. Man, I've been like running so hard and it's not really to try to catch up on time. It's just that I feel that I know that life and death is at this. It could happen at any moment. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want it to like waste my time and die. Not f- still full. So since I've been home from prison, I've been just like running. I'm just recently just taking some time out to, to, to go hiking, working out. I love working out. I love, that's like my moment where me and my wife have this disagreement. She's like, why do you work out so much? Right. Or why do you go to the gym every day? It's that's my time of solitude, you know? So working out, um, hiking and just enjoying life now, bro. I'm, I'm just helping. And, I, and for a while I had to struggle with that because I felt guilty enjoying life because there was so much work I needed to do. But I'm learning now to just step back and enjoy life more um, because, you know, when you come home from prison, you have to like it's you have to like really rebuild your whole life over again. You know, you have to create that type of financial cushion that if something were to go wrong, you'll be OK. And that's why I never wanted to be in a situation where I am financially broke to a point where I I'm thinking about doing something crazy. So I'm out in this world where there's so many opportunities to make money. And people are choosing to be lazy. I'm like, now nah, I'm going to 10x this ish, and I'm going to I'm going to get some money to create a cushion for myself. Now I feel like I have that cushion. Some of the stuff now I can put on autopilot, where I can relax and enjoy my daughter. I have a six year old daughter. We may jump out on the trampoline and just do stuff with her. You know, those are things that I do now. I'm really I'm crazy. I'm from Hilton Head, brother, but I'm really not a person that loves the water, like fishing wise. You know, my dad, my dad, that's his thing. He got boats in the yard and. <laughs> I'm not that guy. I'm not the guy to go on a boat and go fishing. You know, because my mind would be running too much, sitting out there just waiting for a fish to bite. <laughs> but maybe when I get old, I may practice that a little bit. But right now, it's just really just sitting down and enjoy hiking and family outside. That's my thing right now. That's beautiful, man. Yeah. This conversation exceeded my expectations. I got to tell you, I I appreciate it a ton. You're you're a fun guy to talk to, you know, and I've, I learned a lot, honestly. And I think the goal, what we talked about at the onset of this, of making sure that, you know, this finds a way to make an impact for people. I have no doubt that it will, regardless if they're, you know, incarcerated or not. I think there's a message here just for people that can't get out of their own way. You know, I've, I know a lot of people that are, you know, they want to do better. They really, really want to do better but it's that mentality of making your bed every morning, doing the little things every single day and not expecting it to change overnight, but knowing that that consistency is what will be the winning element. Right. And uh, man, that's uh, it's been a pleasure to have a conversation with you. Hopefully we can do it again in the future. And I do promise I'm going to hold you to it. Uh, next time I'm in Hilton head area, I'm giving Where you a come? ring and we, uh, we need to be in person. You come to Hilton and we do a podcast on the beach. And I love we're, it. We're going to eat some good seafood and enjoy out there. So make sure you come in the summertime, though, man. So we can definitely uh, get on the beach, relax, do a podcast, just uh, recap part two of this podcast, man. So Most look forward definitely. to it. Most definitely. Where can everybody go and find uh, everything for you that you're doing right now? Thanks, man. Um, just go to path2redemption.org. You can go there. You'll find all my social media handles. Um, also, you can send me a message and you can see some of the work that I'm doing. Um, so yeah, just go to path2redemption.org and let's get connected. Thank you, my friend. Be blessed.